Welcome to this episode of Sarah Shady Public Philosopher. I am joined today with a colleague, Dr. George Sakaridis, who is a lecturer in philosophy and religion at South Dakota State University. So welcome, George. It's great to be here. Uh, George and I met in um, September of 2019 at a workshop on um Populism, the rise of populism and in intellectual virtues. And George was part of the team that pulled that together. Um, George, do you want to say a little bit about the workshop and the idea behind it? Wow, okay. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the workshop basically was a South Dakota Humanities Grant workshop, which is, you know, a modest workshop, let's say. But we were able to invite a number of scholars um, and had keynote speakers from uh, Dr. Kirk Hawkins and Dr. Heather Baddeley, um, so a philosopher and a political scientist in reverse order there. And, uh, and of course, you were one of the applicants and invitees, so you were one of the winners. <laughs> yes, <And, laughs> right. <laughs> and, a lovely prize. No. <laughs> and actually, it was a great uh, workshop. With these workshops, when you invite people, you know, you're looking at resumes and abstracts. And you don't, I mean, I try and read the people through that, but you can't always do that. And I think it worked out really well. We had a great group that worked well together. And of course, you know, the rise of populism has been uh, abrupt, I don't know, fast. (laughs) Right. And that may be a topic forthcoming on Sarah Shady Public Philosopher. So look for that in future episodes. Um, what? Oh. I know, right? Uh, we'll, we'll have George phone in for that episode. <laughs> um, but it was a really wonderful workshop of three days with a lot of time to uh, just talk and, and dialogue and wrestle with ideas and get to know participants. And so that's how George and I got to know each other. And I found out about some of his other interests. And hence, George is now on campus at Bethel to give a talk this evening evening on intersections between um, digital media, the humanities, and ethics. So, George, do you want to give an overview of some of of the theme for tonight's talk? Sure. Well, as you all know, the rise of technology has been fast and aggressive, especially in the 20th and 21st century. And so we have concerns often with social media. Everyone blames Facebook. We'll blame Facebook a little bit in the talk tonight. <laughs> and people are concerned about their privacy. And so that's one kind of prong of this lecture. But the other is uh, how we um, how we relate to each other as humans and what social media and technology does to our humanity. Mm-hmm. And so I really like to focus on identity and issues of identity in a virtual world. And so I'll take it in that direction and kind of kind of press us to say, hey, uh, philosophy and ethics are important in this world informing who we are as human beings. Excellent. And so I'm really excited um, to dig into some of these issues. So let's start with this issue of identity. Like, what are some of the ways that you think technology is shaping how we think of who human beings are and, and how it's defining that notion of personal identity? Well, there's a couple things that jump out to me, and one is is relationship. So what our identity looks like in relationship to other people in real life and in social media. So um, let's give an example. I'm just pulling this out here. But like when somebody asks you to lunch, let's say through text message, we have this tendency to kind of put them off. And it's easy to do that on social media. You can say, hey, I think I'm free, but 
let me get back to you. And what you're doing is kind of bookmarking that and saying, well, okay, if I get a better offer, maybe I'm going to not have lunch with this right. person. And I, I mean, honestly, I think that's what a lot of people do. Whereas when you're present and in person with someone, it's hard to say no unless you really want to say no. And so social media becomes this filter through which we kind of become more insular and protect our true identity from others. So uh, I'll talk about this a little bit tonight, but you know, uh, the philosophers Albert Borgman and um, Hubert Dreyfus, not Richard, not to be confused with Richard <laughs> Dreyfus of Jaws fame, uh, talk about some of these issues and how we need to be fully present. And in social media, our identity is kind of warped because we're not fully present. So that's one issue. The second issue is just how we relate to our own identity and how we see ourselves. So somebody puts out, and I'm sure all of you have heard this before, but somebody puts out pictures on Instagram or Facebook, and of course they're looking great. They're you know overlooking a waterfall on a cliff in Bali or something, and it's like, wow, that person's life is awesome. And you start to look at your own life and your own pictures, and you go, uh, my life isn't that great. Because you know that the great pictures you're putting out are just kind of a front not understanding that that's the same for everybody else. So we start to see ourselves maybe as less than we are because we start to compare ourselves to an idealized vision of what other people are. That's really interesting because I almost wonder if there's a bit of a tension there that we aren't um, present in social media in the same way because we like to delay things. Mm -hmm. and, and to a degree, we also don't want to be present with the reality of our actual lives. So it's like it creates this alternative space where we can be people mm -hmm. that we might rather be or um, delay or change the nature of relationships to a little bit less natural, less present way of being, um, mm -hmm. being with others. I mean, it's harder to be vulnerable in social media. And I think part of it is because it's a public face. So if I put out, and, and I'm, we all have friends that do this, I've probably done it, where you put out a post, you're like, I'm feeling really bad today, or I'm depressed, or, you know, something just that you're feeling something. And people are going to look at that like, why is this person sharing this? And, right. and part of, partly it is the venue. I mean, maybe that isn't the best place to in front of 500 followers saying, I feel depressed. But at the same time, it's you're trying to reach out in a way that is uh, maybe both inappropriate but necessary. Mm -hmm. And um, social media doesn't help us connect to people directly because, I mean, we have direct messaging, but we have to reach out and kind of filter through 500 friends or whatever. So I think it affects the way we kind of are able to be ourselves and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, but it also, I mean, I'll, I'll spin this a little bit. This could be a positive thing also because we all have identity issues that have been kind of laid upon us by others. Um, you know, most people have had some, let's say, degree of stress through high school or college or, you know, anyone who's gone through puberty has probably suffered some humiliation of some sort. Right. And, and your identity is formed in that in ways that aren't necessarily healthy. And so social media does allow you to kind of be the self you want to be. Now, whether that real self starts to conform to that or not, that's a different issue. I mean, so it, there are some positives there, I think. So I'm, I'm going to quote Don Draper here because I'm a big Mad Men fan. But it said, you know, if you don't like what they're saying, change the conversation. And right. I think social media allows us to do that in a way that maybe we didn't weren't able to previously. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that's interesting, too, in terms of as we start to think about what are some of the social and political applications of this, and as well as some of the the ethical implications of this, we might be able to try to change the messages about ourselves, and yet other people might be presenting a message of who we are um, on social media that we lose control over. I was reading an article the other day about, um, you know, when I was in middle school, let's imagine I drop my lunch tray um, in the cafeteria and I'm embarrassed and I don't want to go back to school the next day because everyone's laughing at me, but give it a week, it's done. Whereas today, a kid who drops the lunch tray in middle school and somebody happens to get a video clip of it, right, that's going to live for time and time and, you know, into the future. And it can be really hard to fight that message. Yeah, that's actually that raises a different point in my mind. But I I want to follow up on this and then follow up on that. But yeah, that's very true. I really feel for young people who have to go through puberty in a world where there are cameras everywhere Mm -hmm. and recording devices. And so if you drop your lunch tray, now you're a meme. Right. And for the rest of your life, at least in some ways, you are going to deal with that. Um, there's also this idea of identity, and I'm not going to talk about this in the talk, although now that we're talking about it, maybe I'll bring it in. But where, like, so I'll go through, you go through your old Facebook posts from five, ten years ago, and you say, I, I said that, or right. I looked like that, or I did that. And you see yourself in a more kind of, I don't know, in a rigid way. I mean, like, so our memories aren't always reliable. They always say that. Um, so our memory of how we were 10 years ago might not be actuality. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, I'd argue that like a photograph of yourself 10 years ago isn't totally accurate either. I mean, right. there are uh, there's a filter that's at work there. But looking at those photos, looking at those videos, so if you see yourself in high school dropping a tray from 10, 20 years ago, that's going to bring back certain memories and reinforce an identity that maybe you had left behind. Whereas, like you said, you know, in the past, it would have been out of people's collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. So Social media can reinforce bad and good identities. And and I've probably experienced both of those. I'm sure many of us have. <laughs> no, absolutely. I have as well. And it's interesting. So philosophically, um, you know, when we talk about personal identity, one of the key questions is what thread links together our identity over time so that we have, right, we have the appearance of some sort of consistency to personal identity. And yet it's really hard to pinpoint what that is because memory seems to link it together, but memory isn't accurate. And, you know, and consciousness can't quite link it together because we sleep. And, you know, and so um, do you have any theories of where you go on this in terms of what does link personal identity together over time? Uh, that's a great question, actually. And I, I mean, it's one that philosophers have struggled with through history. So I think it was John Locke who yes. focused on memory. Mm-hmm. So we'll throw that little bit tidbit right. for your listeners. Um, not John Locke from the TV show Lost. Right, exactly. But, Different. Uh, you notice I go pop culture a lot here. I hope that's okay. <laughs> oh, that's totally fine uh, okay. with our channel of listeners. Yes. What? Okay. <laughs> so that's good. Um, but yeah, John Locke talked about memory. And I think memory does play a role because we do... But I think it's sort of a piggybacking memory. So you might not have an accurate memory of what happened 30 years ago, but you might have an accurate memory of the memory you had 10 years ago. Mm, So if it mm -hmm. links together over time, you might be able to string together some sort of identity. But that can also go wrong. And with social media and this kind of public record, 
or even private record. Um, let's take this back to, you know, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, and, and before. Uh, you know, someone might have a diary. And they might go back and read their diary and go, wow, I didn't know I thought that way or felt that way. And that, that could be a force of uh, a, a, a method of reinforcement. And I think and part of what I, I hope comes out of the talk tonight is technology does change rapidly, but these ideas aren't changing. So that idea that our memories affect who we are, that's been, you know, that's been around a long time. I mean, John Locke, that's that's hundreds of years. And it's, I'm sure, before that. Right. Um, so. I think technology kind of drives that engine in a way that's more aggressive now, but those ideas are present in philosophy. So see, philosophy is relevant. Exactly. <laughs> philosophy has been relevant for 2,500 years. <laughs> yes. Um, and this notion in which our identity and our memories are no longer just recorded in a private diary that I keep under lock and key, but they now have some amount of permanence in public space. And that seems to me to, to kind of bring us around to, to this issue of privacy and the concerns yes. around that. And I'm sure there are, you know, different approaches to this. I tend to personally err too much on the naive side of, I have nothing to hide. Why worry about my <laughs> privacy settings? So how does privacy figure in to all of this? Uh that's a nice segue. So <laughs> I think actually if we're going to switch social media platforms a little bit, we could talk about Twitter. Yeah. And Twitter now is basically being archived as historical, you know, uh, information. Right. And so, you know, and, and we have a president that is very Twitter happy. I mean, that really likes to use Twitter. And so everything that goes out. And even if you put it out there and then delete it, it's already out there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true of pretty much everything, even with Snapchat. Um, so listeners, right. <laughs> don't do anything stupid out there. Um, but I think with, with privacy, and I tend to err the opposite way. I tend to be extra private, although because of social media and the nature of it, there's certain things I will just, I just allow mm -hmm. to be out there. Um, but I'm very cautious about, just on a personal note, like uh, what I put out there of my family. Yes. Because I don't want, like, I don't want my kids to have to deal with things later because I decided it was okay to put that picture up. Right. That's a decision they should make, I think. But privacy is is a huge issue. And I think what's happening, and, and you may see this with your students, is they don't have the same sense of privacy we might because they grew up in a world where the internet was always active and smartphones were active probably for most of their life, maybe yeah. two thirds of it, three fourths of it. And so their sense of privacy is different. But what I try and do with my students is to tell them, hey, um, this is a different way of thinking about it because they haven't seen that. And so let me just throw it out there. Your stuff is not private. Like nothing is private. If, if anyone wants to get a hold, I shouldn't say anyone, but if large entities like the government or a corporation or somebody wants to get a hold of your data, they can do so. Um, so people talk about the the government's listening in on me or they're watching me and i don't believe that's true but i do believe that at any moment if they wanted to they could mm -hmm. and so our privacy is there but in a sense it's a facade because they're you know if you go out in public if you stop at an atm you're being recorded if you go to walmart now you're being recorded so there's images of you that track your location and who you you know your your actual facial image and your data in various ways. That's financial, medical, other things. And we'll talk about that tonight a little bit. Great. So as we think about the ethics and legality of all of this, and keeping in mind that law and ethics aren't always the same thing, but how do we set 
pro- proper limits around this? Do you think we need more um, limits in place? Um, and is that a government issue? Is that an issue of the private citizen? <laughs> How do we bring law and ethics into this? So this is the Sarah Shady public philosopher legal corner. Yeah. Right <laughs> Let's so, step on over into that legal <laughs> corner. No, but that's that's a great question. And I mean, I think that somewhat is a matter of personal opinion, whether you feel it's a government issue or personal or private issue. I think both mm-hmm. play a role. I think um, it is the government's role to protect its citizens and that there are some reasonable things that might be done to do that. Um, that's why Facebook just doesn't have carte blanche to do whatever it likes. Although at the same time, it is a private corporation and they can do. And you're, and we'll talk about this tonight. So we're hitting the right notes. Exactly. But like, you know, Facebook, you sign a a waiver on the terms of service and no one reads it. Right. Like, and you kind of assume there's this collective safety in saying, well, everybody's signing it. My friend signed it, so it'll probably be okay. But legally, so if you want to get to the legal aspect of it, you're not. I mean, you've given away something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we as as private citizens, as human beings, need to protect ourselves. I think that's a good approach to anything. You know, be wise. You know, philosophy is the study of wisdom. So let's study wisdom and be wise. And um, one of the solutions I propose is is virtue ethics and, and virtue and just building our character so that we don't allow ourselves to be pulled along with kind of the, the winds as right. they may be in social media. So I do believe there's a strong individual component. But I do think the government has obligations to to lay down laws that help to facilitate that. And so one of the problems we have is like we're still still dealing with technology laws that are from like the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, when Apple uh, said no to the FBI and said, we're not going to hack our own phone, the government was trying to apply uh, – I'm sorry. The government was trying to invoke the All Writs Act, I think, of 1789. So, I mean, this is a late 19th <laughs> – or I'm sorry, late 18th century law that basically says the judicial system can kind of do what it wants when there is a situation that hasn't been covered by the law. Mm-hmm. So – it is important that we update our laws as regards technology because the privacy issues are so great now. Yeah. Um, and when we think of um, these privacy issues as well and some of the laws um, surrounding this, and thinking about the ethics of it too, I love bringing um, the virtue perspective in there. I'm thinking about students who are majoring in subjects related to data mining Mm -hmm. or the creation of social media and who will actually go on to work in some of these fields. What would your advice and encouragement to be be to them as they think about the ethics of their job and what appropriate data mining looks like or (laughs) um, what appropriate involvement in these fields would look like? That is a tough question. Mm-hmm. I mean, partly because a lot of the people who are doing the coding or doing, you know, the engineering, they're, you know, for lack of a better word right now, foot soldiers in this huge, you know, uh, corporate engine. Yeah. And so they may do things that are fine, but they're being used in ways that are not appropriate. So we actually at South Dakota State University, we do require computer science students to take a ethics of um, informatics course. That sounds like a great idea. It is. And <laughs> I happen to teach it. Yeah. <laughs> so that 
that course really I try and expose students to just both personal and corporate issues there. And I mean, Edward Snowden, you know, kind of put mm -hmm. all of this on the map in, in a very large way. So I think people that are involved in that industry need to be aware of what where the ethical kind of lines are. But but data mining in itself is not unethical. Mm -hmm. So I'll give this example tonight or one similar. Um, say I go to Amazon and I look for a humidifier and I look through them and then I, I forget about it. And then I go to Facebook or one of any other site and see an ad for a humidifier. Right. And there's a discount and it's one that I want. Well, that was a form of data mining. I mean, you know, there's cookies involved in different things. They're tracking what I'm doing. But it's going to benefit me if I actually do want to buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll maybe say this tonight, but that's a reminder to all your listeners to watch what you search for <laughs> on <laughs> <Yes>. the web. <laughs> yes, indeed. Because your ads are based in your behavior. And so I used to help, actually, I still help moderate a fairly large um, um, athletics website for um, my alma mater. Well, it's not officially my alma mater, but you get the idea. Um, and people would you know, jump on and go, why am I getting ads for so-and-so? And it's like, well, probably because you searched for so-and-so. Yeah. And, and, and so data mining, though, in itself isn't bad because it could be giving you what you want. Mm -hmm. um, it gets confused. I shouldn't say it gets dicey when we start to look at are they actually tracking individual aspects of data that can be linked back to you as a person? Mm -hmm. So they know. Dr. Sarah Shady has searched for humidifiers and and it's going into some database somewhere versus there's a user in, you know, the Twin Cities who. OK, so like markers on that data really are a huge part of that. The ethics for me, at least. Mm -hmm. Are there any cases where data mining, even if it included um, elements of my own personal identity, that gathering of that data would contribute to some greater good such that I should be okay giving <laughs> away my personal right for the greater good? I cannot see a situation where, let's say, your name, your social security number, um, you know, at least those two things. Mm -hmm. Maybe your birth, your birthday could because it could be put you in an age category. You know, your sex could because it says something about men's or women's. You know, it could help with medical data, those sorts of things. Your location can affect that can be beneficial. But like social security number and name tied to data, I, I'd have big problems with that. Sure. Um, but as far as other markers like age, location, um, even health issues. So if you have I'll just go with a big one. Say you have cancer mm -hmm. and you have other like you live in a certain place, you're a certain age and you have a certain disease that might tell us something when you start to accumulate that data about, well, this area has an un, you know, unusually large proportion of people who have cancer. Sure. Maybe there's a reason for that and it can actually help us um, in both maybe treatment and prevention. So there are things like that, I think, that are beneficial markers like that. But if you're getting into somebody's like social or name um, and the problem is once you get one or two markers and you start to, you know, statisticians can jump in on this, uh, you know, you can start to kind of do some math and figure out who's who. Uh-huh. Um, so there was, an, there was a, a case um, a few years ago where there was a girl who was pregnant. She was a teenage girl who was pregnant, if I'm remembering this right. And Target figured out her shopping patterns and figured out she was pregnant just from her shopping patterns and sent like coupons for diapers 
to her house and her father found them not knowing she was pregnant and found out she was pregnant that way. Oh, wow. And so there's ways that that data can be used. And that was supposedly a good thing. Like, we're going to give you coupons for something you want. They were they accidentally outed her her secret. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think there are many cases like that where we have to be careful how we treat that data. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I've heard about the um, DNA kits, um, you know, with 23andMe or kind of those kinds of things that there's huge storehouses now <laughs> of everyone's DNA, which on the one hand, you can imagine, oh, we could maybe learn a lot about medical issues through mm-hmm. that and tracing them in different genetic patterns. And at the same time, it's frightening to think... <laughs> <laughs> All I did was do this test to find out about my own identity, and now I've given away, yeah. you know, some really important data about myself. Wow, that's that opens a big can of worms. So I, I want to bring that back to identity in a mm-hmm. second because identity is is linked to that that testing quite a bit. Um, supposedly, I think with that DNA, you're not tying it to yourself. You're okay. tying it to a number, and then you access that information through that number. Okay. At least that's how it used to be with like the National Geographic Genographic Project, mm-hmm. I think it was called. Um, that may have changed. So I think there are some issues, serious issues there. I mean, like, think about if you want to get, uh, you know, pre-approved TSA, uh, whatever it is, to get on the plane earlier, you have to give up your fingerprints and certain things. You're giving up kind of identity in a way so you're no longer uh, anonymous mm-hmm. when you fly. I mean, you aren't anyway, but you're giving up something into the permanent record as you're alluding to. The other side of that is identity. So what if you are, and I'm Greek, I'm Greek-American, um, grew up in Chicago, and I, I'm not speaking personally here, but, you know, Greeks and Turks, uh, they've had some issues, right, sure. historically. So what if, as a, as a, as a Greek-American, I take the DNA test and I find out I'm half Turkish mm-hmm. and I had a hatred for Turkish people? Um, what does that do to my identity suddenly? If, right. I, if I have to find out I am the very thing I hate. And I think there's some good in that, too, because I think sometimes we take on cultural identities that are uh, maybe not healthy. Mm-hmm. And and maybe we should see that DNA is a little more mixed. But I think that those identity tests, those DNA tests can have a great effect on how we view our identity. So technology is really driving that, especially for people who don't know their history. Mm-hmm. So if you have known nothing about your, let's say, ethnic identity and you take one of those tests, suddenly you find out I'm so-and-so and you have um, pride in that, even though it really hasn't been a part of your life. Right. There are both pros and cons to that. And I think that we could take that in, a, in an ethical, philosophical direction, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's another whole set of things in terms of, as we're thinking as philosophers about personal identity, how much of it is rooted in our biology and our genetic code versus how much of it is constructed um, in mm-hmm. terms of the life that we've chosen to live or who we've chosen to identify as in the public. Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm thinking too about identity and as it and, and I think there may be a connection to privacy here as well. And the idea to which sometimes people use a false identity okay. when they're online. So they might have a false 
profile or use a picture that's not actually them on a dating site or, you know, or even <laughs> Facebook, right? Yes. Um, and then thinking about, let's say I want to sign up for some service or I want to get through to some web page, but it's asking me for a name and birth date. So maybe I put in false information at that. Um, are there <laughs> ethical issues surrounding false identity or is that just kind of neutral because it's not the real world? It's a made up world. I think that's a great question. Um, one that I've struggled with in my own life and I may or may not have, have given data <laughs> that was not 100% accurate. Um, but I think especially like the uh, the birthday is a great example. So um, if one one way, let's put it that way, one way someone might look at that is say, well, we want to make sure that our users are 18 years old or 21 years old. So we need to make sure they have a birthday that is, you know, old enough for that. Mm -hmm. So if you look at that and you go, well, I'm going to give a false birthday, but it's going to be one that is above whatever age I am. Or if I'm not 21, let's say, I don't give. So you're giving a false uh, false information. But if you see the intent as just a marker to see if you're a certain age, then ultimately their needs are met. Mm -hmm. Now, again, there's some ethical questions with that. But that's one way to approach it. Um, you might also approach it in saying if someone does something to you or asks something of you that is clearly unethical, do you have an ethical right then to do something unethical in response? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really the heart of that question. So if someone asks you for data that is super personal, um, you could just you could lie or you could not give it or you can do a lot of things. And I mean, I'm really big on honesty, so yeah. it, it's hard to just you know outright tell a lie. I would say, but at the same time, there's an ethical question there. Yeah. And I think that's one of the benefits of a virtue ethics approach to mm -hmm. this. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with virtue ethics, that's where we're thinking more about the development of character traits over time, like honesty and courage and justice and generosity and patience that help us more often than not just sort of automatically know the right thing to do. So instead of having to stop in every particular situation and decide what is the right thing for me to do, it's about becoming the sort of person who more often than not acts in a virtuous way. And so some of these issues are um, taken care of if we've worked at becoming <laughs> <laughs> virtuous persons. Yeah, and, and I really like, so I use... Um I like to cite, so I'll do this. But yeah. I like to use Lewis Vaughn. I use Lewis Vaughn's book for my intro to ethics course. Mm -hmm. And I think he, he frames it as, you know, deontological ethics or non-consequentialist ethics, which I've opened a can of worms in there, um, asks the question, what should I do? Mm -hmm. Whereas virtue ethics asks the question, what should I be? And, right. And, and, and as you're saying. And I think that's a, that's a helpful way to think about it um, because, you know, We'll give the example that everyone gives, but, you know, Nazi German soldiers who were, say, I was just following orders. Mm -hmm. Well, so you could say I just did what I was told. And deontological ethics can fall into that trap sometimes, I think, whereas virtue ethics puts the responsibility on you to have that fully formed character. And I think that in a virtual world, our relationships do need to be fully formed. And I'm going to hit that point hard tonight because... And, and the way I put it is, if you expect to be loved, and I think that's what social media is in part about, is people loving you. You're, you're, you're reaching out because you want to be loved. And if 
you aren't putting your full self out there, whatever love you're getting is not real love because they are not seeing you as a fully formed person. Mm. So they're not loving you. They're loving the perception of you or maybe not even that. And so I think virtue ethics brings it back to say, hey, um, we're going to look at making ourselves great um, of great character and showing who we are in that character. And that, I think, leads to an abundance of relationship and love and those sorts of things. Do you think that there's um, that it's possible to present your whole self on social media in a way that would allow you to be fully loved? Or would you argue that in the virtual world that (laughs) isn't the case and that's why we need actual human relationships? That is a very tough and very good question. I would say the answer is no, I don't think you can have a fully formed relationship on social media, but mm-hmm. I think you can get a lot closer than most people get. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've, I, you know, you kind of find this, you know, I follow some entrepreneurial sites and things like that, or, you know, feeds on Facebook and different places. And, you know, there's this idea of finding your tribe. This has kind of become popular in the yes. last 10 years. Find your tribe, which I don't particularly love the the way that's branded, but I think the idea is is good. And if you find the right group of people that you kind of fit with, you are able to be more um, open and um, just hmm, what is the word I'm looking for here? Just be yourself. Uh, yeah, maybe more authentic. vulnerable, that, authentic. That is the sure. word I'm looking for. Another catch word in today's world, but <laughs> but authentic. Just and and when just saying what you think, what you mean, but. You're not putting your full self out there because you're not physically present. Your voice may or may not be present. Even if you show video, it's not really the same thing. Um, so this weekend, I was watching a video of myself, actually, um, give a lecture. I hate watching videos of myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, there's, I think there's a good reason for that. And, and I was, so I was watching this video in preparation for this lecture, actually. And I go, you know, this, there's some problems here. I had mm. some problems. But I know that when I gave the lecture, it was very well received. And I, and I did a very good job. And so it's interesting, like through the filter of the video, so the video sound wasn't as good. So my voice wasn't as commanding as it would have been in a, in a classroom. Yeah. There's all these like filters we go through. So in social media, even if you're trying to be yourself as much as you can, there's a bunch of filters that don't allow you to be your full self. Mm-hmm. So I'd go back to my original answer. No, the answer is no, you can't. But I think you can approximate it a lot better than most people do. Yeah. Um, so as we're thinking of a list of kind of what is what is the best way to be um, your full self or as close to your full self as you can get on social media, we want honesty, authenticity, any other things that you would want to add to that list of good ethical practices on social media? <laughs> uh, I think one is is limiting your time on social media. Mm. And so because the longer you're on it, the more and I'll, I'll, I, if, I, if, if things go a certain way tonight, I'll say this phrase this way, but social media kind of creates these empty calories. So like we want more, like if you're eating a bag of potato chips, like you, you eat a few and you're like, this tastes good. I like it. And you start eating more and more. And after a while, you're probably not feeling so good, but you keep eating them. Yeah. And I think social media has the same sort of, it's easy, it's tasty, but you can't get as deep. And so by limiting your time, you kind of allow yourself not to fall into that trap of of being someone maybe you, you aren't. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think honesty is the biggest one. Um, and that's honesty in, in a lot of ways. So honesty in your personal messages and your posting. Um, I think kindness is another important one. Yeah. So you don't need to tell that person who had a bad day and is saying, I'm depressed or I'm angry at something. Uh, you know, the, the best example is politics. So, right. you know, I have friends of both political persu- persuasions and, you know, somebody posts something, they'll be like, if you don't agree with me, you can just unfriend me right now. It's like, I don't know if you'd say that to your friend in real life. Yeah. Um, so that is is a form of honesty, I think, but it really is kindness and concern for the other and, and those sorts of things. So I think when we are in social media, we need to be as fully present as we can be. And, and part of that is thinking, wow, I have friends that are going to read this. How would they perceive this? Mm-hmm. So it isn't just being honest because sometimes we're honest and it's not the best choice. Right. Um, yeah. Because it's harsh. And I think honesty must be done in love or in kindness. Mm hmm. I think that's a great analogy of the empty calories and the way in which mm-hmm. um, when we're seeking the likes on a tweet or on a Facebook <laughs> post or an Instagram, you know, it's the really craving something that's yeah. best met in the actual world or actual relationships. And, and I think the problem we have and the real problem with social media, or one of them is that it feeds that sort of kind of cycle. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be loved and we feel that this is the only way we can get love because in some, for some people it is. Mm-hmm. Um, if you watch, you know, young people, not that I do that often, but if you watch, you know, teenagers, they might be all on their phones and sharing messages even though they're present right. physically. Yes. They kind of go into that world. And, and I think, honestly, some of that has really helped a lot of people because you can be honest in a way you couldn't maybe in person mm-hmm. because it's hard to share something in person, but at the same time, it removes you. And so I think we have to be careful with that. Yeah, great. Um, are there any other things about the topic for tonight that we haven't hit on yet that you'd like to add to the conversation? Well, there is one, mm-hmm. and this wasn't a setup, listeners. I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I one of the I have two main points I want to hit with this. And, and one is that we need to be fully present in social media and in, in life. And, and virtue ethics is the way to do that. Ethics is the way we do that. But ethics is also um, the bridge, I feel like, between the humanities and the STEM mm. uh, disciplines. And so we have ethics that kind of because like this informatics class I mentioned, ethics of informatics. We have ethics of, uh, you know, I'm sorry, bioethics. We have right. all these places where science is looking to figure out how do we be more human because if we don't learn these things, it's not working out for our, our patients or mm-hmm. our customers. And so ethics connects that. And we need to really push that, I think. And ethics, in some ways, it, I don't want to say it's a facade, um, but it's it's this thing we're kind of laying over the fact that we should just be moral, good human beings. And ethics is a formal, you know, academic way that we can say that we're doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I really want to emphasize that point, though, that we we can we need technology. We need the humanities and ethics helps us understand both. Absolutely. And one of the things that I love in thinking about this idea of ethics courses bridging that gap between the humanities and technology and STEM fields is the way in which it provides a chance for students 
Um, not that an ethics class is going to give them a checklist of in every possible workplace situation as a doctor or nurse, I will always do X. But it's about learning the right questions mm -hmm. to ask. What should I be thinking about? What should I be wondering about that might not yet be on the table in the discussion in my workplace? And what virtues do I want to have? What person do I want to be in whatever mm -hmm. career field I go into? So... I love that idea. Yes, yes, we need more ethics, says Sarah Shady, public philosopher. <laughs> and you can take ethics courses here. <laughs> you can, indeed. Um, yeah, so, um, George, you are yourself a podcaster. Uh, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> what, is that? what is your show? Um, so I have a podcast with a friend of mine. His name is Randy Woodbury. We've actually known each other since college, uh -huh. um, since I was 17 years old. Um, so I'm, what, 21 now? No, I'm just Yeah, kidding. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's been a good four-year yeah, run exactly. on that friendship. No, <laughs> no, but yeah, we've known each other a long time. Um, but we run a podcast called Cheers Weekly, and we follow the TV show Cheers, which ran from 1982 to 1993. So it's it's been a little while now. And actually, even when I was a kid, it was uh, I was a little young to watch it, mm -hmm. at least when it first came on. Uh, we follow it episode by episode, and we talk about entertainment and, and comedy and, and have a lot of fun with it. And so it's kind of a pop culture television, you know, commentary show. And you can follow us on iTunes. Excellent. And uh, we're at uh, Facebook backslash Cheers Weekly or on Twitter at Cheers Weekly Pod. Mm -hmm. And um, we'd love to have you take a listen. So st any of our listeners wondering who <laughs> Cliff Clavin is, you need to watch some Cheers. <laughs> so that you can get all the cultural reference references that Sarah and I are making in exactly, class, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, George, do you have any good book recommendations for us? Something that you've read lately that you think, oh listeners should read this? Well, you know, actually, so it isn't quite in line with what we're doing, but the common read book at South Dakota State University this year is um, Irresistible by Adam Alter. Hmm. And it's a very accessible trade paperback. Um, he actually came and spoke at our school last month, and it's about tech addiction. And it talks, it compares like various forms of addiction to tech addiction. And the tricky thing about tech addiction is like if you're addicted to alcohol or drugs, you can kind of go cold turkey and just say, I'm not going to do this. I mean, easier said than done, but you can eliminate it from your life, at least potentially. You can't do that with tech very easily mm -hmm. because we, if we work a job and academia is a great example, we're going to need email. Mm -hmm. We're going to need to check our phone. It's just a necessity. Yeah. And so navigating that is tricky. And I think his book does a really good job and it's really accessible. So I would recommend that uh, to our listeners. Great. That sounds like a great read. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Sarah Shady Public Philosopher. A lot to think about, a lot to talk about. Um, so I will close. So go do some good in the world this week. Thanks.